This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah, sorry about that. I think my child just started turning dials. I I saw it. The gain was way up. I was going to say, that's what an eight-year-old says. What is that? Yeah. God, I'm thinking now about all the meetings I've been in. (laughs) You've been intense since 2 p.m. Normally, I'd say having a bit more gen is a great thing, but (laughs) this is too much gen. Okay, we set? I'm ready. So Michelle's already turned. She's already done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, I'm out. Who we are as people. Like I say, every four years I'm popping. I'm a military kid on the Air Force brand. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. Creativities and imbued in every single thing I do. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie. That's really none of anybody's business. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all steeped in the same tea. Welcome to the other side of Canada. Hi, I'm Jen from the College of Natural Sciences. And I'm Stephanie in the College of Liberal Arts. Today, we are talking to Thea Woodruff. Dr. Thea Woodruff coordinates the Wellbeing and Learning Environments Project at the Counseling and Mental Health Center at the University of Texas at Austin. On this project, Dr. Woodruff works with faculty to embed practices for improving student well-being in their classes. She also teaches courses as a lecturer in the College of Education. Before working at CMHC, Dr. Woodruff worked as a researcher, professional development creator, and technical assistance provider at the Meadows Center for Prevention of Educational Risk at UT Austin. She has also worked as a district-level administrator in a school district and as a consultant supporting state, district, and campus-level literacy initiatives. Theo, welcome. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I can talk about this stuff forever. So you guys just got to tell me what to say. (laughs) We are excited, Thea. So one thing to get us started is we know you from your great work at the university, but we'd like to know a little bit about how it all started for you. So like what sparked your interest in working in this field? Okay. So I started out as a, as an educator. So I have a teaching certification in specifically elementary school, but I also have worked some with adolescents. In that work, I really was interested in the more emotional and motivational aspects of teaching and learning. I realized that when I was teaching, you know, you can teach all the content you want, but if students aren't motivated, if they're not interested, uh, it's pretty hard to get them to learn. And so when I came back actually to get my doctorate, the reason I was coming back is I was really interested in this idea of motivation and like, how can I motivate students, you know, to, to be more interested in the stuff that I'm interested in them learning, right? This content that I think is so important and many of them could care less, right? And so, uh, but what I realized when I came back and I already kind of knew this a little bit, but in going to graduate school and, and reading this stuff and, and finding out all these experts that are out there, I realized that a lot of the problem was not the students, it was the context, right? And that we don't create, we don't create learning contexts that are super motivating or super supportive of emotional growth and emotional, you know, positive emotions. So that's kind of what I ended up studying in getting my doctorate. I got uh, my dissertation was actually on adolescent motivation and identity. And in that there was, I did some quantitative work, but I also did some qualitative work where I interviewed ninth graders and followed them around their high school and I did some other pilot studies and things. And while I was doing that, I was actually teaching students at UT in a learning to learn class. 
And I was teaching UT students about some of the things that I had been, I was studying, you know, with adolescents and I was teaching them about motivation and anxiety, but I was also teaching them some other things about like metacognition and thinking about thinking and being a more effective learner. But one of the things that I always stressed in that class was this thing that I had learned about the academic context and that the context at UT, I had to tell these UT students is not always super supportive of your learning. And there's a lot of things that are out of your control that you can't really do a lot about. So you, you have content that maybe is not the most interesting to you, but it's a class you have to take. You're gonna have to figure out a way to motivate yourself to get through it, right? You have a professor who maybe you don't see eye to eye or don't like the way that they teach, but he teaches that class or she teaches that class or they teach that class. You're gonna have to figure out a way to do it, right? The other thing I had to teach these students was, and I don't think a lot of students understand that faculty, higher education faculty, unless you're in the College of Education, don't have a background in learning how to teach, right? They teach the way they were taught. So just because they're standing up in front of the class and teaching 300 people doesn't mean that they have any pedagogical training, <laughs> instructional methods training in how to actually teach. So they pretty much are probably going to teach the way they were taught because it worked for them. Look, they're professors now. So of course they're going to do, and you know, and these students are like, but this isn't more like, why are they standing and just talking for an hour? You know, no, you, you can't do that. It, like if you did that in a third grade class, like the kids with the 25, you know, eight year olds would run you out of the room. There's just, you can't teach that way. And so we use things like cooperative learning. We provide emotional support through things like social emotional learning. And um, this is a lot of stuff that's actually being embedded now and teaching teachers about how to help uh, reduce, help students reduce their stress, right? Help build these things into, into the classroom. And so we have to do those things in pre-K. You wouldn't be able to be a teacher if you <laughs> did some of the things, right, that, uh, that happened in higher ed. So, so that was sort of an aha. And that's always an aha for students when I tell them, you have to understand that a lot of faculty are, are just doing the best. They just are doing what they know, which is what, how they were taught. And they don't necessarily know any better. And if they knew better, they most of, many of them will actually do the things you tell them to do, right? And that's a lot of what this project is then, which is what I really like about it, is it's going in and really helping faculty to teach more effectively. And that's, that's a lot of this, is teaching more effectively. And consider the central place that emotion plays in learning. You can pretend it doesn't. You can pretend that your classroom is a non-emotional, <laughs> that is an emotion neutral place, but it's not. And so the more that you can realize how central that is to learning and that everything you're doing has an emotional connection for students, that there's something connected emotionally, right? The exams you give, the assignments you give, the syllabus you give out on the first day, there's lots of emotions happening when you give out that syllabus, right? Of like people looking at that and trying to decide. So that's that's why I, I did this because or why I wanted to, to work on this project and start helping with this initiative is that idea of helping faculty to do a more effective job and then help by doing that, helping students. I heard you talk about motivation in a learning context, and then you blew my mind saying there's emotion in my syllabus. Tell me about emotion in a syllabus. Well, and you know what made me think about that? Because I, you know, as I'm talking, I kind of ping off of all of these experiences. There was a faculty member I was working with this semester who asked me to work with her. She's in natural sciences. And she was really interested. Her big focus is she wanted the students to know how much she cared about them, that she wanted them to realize that she cared about, not just about them learning the content, but caring about them as whole people, right? 
And the, the first thing she had me do was read her syllabus. So she had me go through and read the language, make sure the language was clear that it didn't come across as, you know, in any sort of negative or judging way or condescending or making assumptions about students. Because you can do that sometimes, you know, after you've taught, especially for a long time, you sort of get these ideas about, oh, this is one of those kinds of students. Or this is this. And I have to put this up front or the students are going to do this or students are going to do that. It's, it's hard not to do that because that's kind of our human nature. But yeah, so she had me go through and look at her syllabus and make sure the language was all the way it should be. And then I helped her kind of organize it a little bit better because where you put things in the syllabus tells students what you prioritize, right? And what you think is important. And so, so we did a little bit of that. We added some, some other things that were, that were missing around some different um, topics like Title IX and some things like that. You know, I, I taught her about, you know, the reasons behind things like mental health days, the reasons why we might have that, the reasons why we have land acknowledgements. So just trying to, again, educate, just you don't know what you don't know, right? But, you know, when students go through and they may not read your syllabus verbatim, probably not, especially not initially, but they're looking for certain things, right? And your syllabus is your first opportunity <laughs> to show the students who you are. And so the way you organize it, the words you say, the things you choose to put in or not put in, the way you choose to put them in, whether you copy and paste something versus actually writing your own statement, personal statement about something. These are all things that students are seeing, right? And so you, you can pretend <laughs> that that doesn't make a difference or that, that, that that's not affecting their perception about you. But it very much is. And I know this too, not just from Thea Woodruff, but from students telling me that. Students talked when, when I've done focus groups with students or just talk with students about this project and what they think. The syllabus almost always comes up at some point about what's, what faculty have in it or don't have in it, how they've written something or not written something. So just realize that it, it does make a difference and it makes a difference when you personalize your syllabus and you put in things in there that show who you are and let students see you and maybe see maybe vulnerabilities or things that goes a, a long way because a lot of what we're talking about is perception. I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday, a faculty member who's going to start on our project about that. What you're trying to do is you're trying to help students perceive you in the way you want to be perceived. And, and that's a little stressful sometimes, probably, because you're always worried. This is like this for faculty member who's like, look at my syllabus, please, and help me. But this is the kind of things we need to be doing, like we were talking about earlier. Like, we kind of do this teaching stuff almost, it feels like someone's in a vacuum. Like, we're nobody's telling us if we're doing it right or wrong. We just kind of keep going. And I remember talking to colleagues, like, when I first started teaching, I was like, am I doing this right? Like, I remember like nobody had been in my class. I was literally, you know, I'm 23 years old, I'm in this class teaching. At the time, I was teaching a, a lot of kids who were struggling, a lot of the students who'd been moved out of other people's class, and they gave me a book room with these like 10 kids. And I'm all day in this book room with these 10 kids, like not at no, no one ever once for like literally four or five months, no other person coming in and watching me or giving me feedback. I'm like, I hope I'm doing this right. Like, <laughs> I hope I hope this is what it's supposed to be, you know, and I don't think it's that different for higher ed faculty. They're just kind of going and doing. I mean, I've never once been observed as a higher ed faculty. And I've been teaching off and on since 2006 at UT. And not a single colleague has ever come in and watched me teach. Nobody. And Thea, I was telling you earlier that it was such a highlight in my semester to have you in. 
peer observation can be such a, well, talk about motivation, a motivating activity. It's really fun. It's, and that's what it's supposed to, you know, people get anxious about it and get a, a little bit, you know, oh gosh, somebody's coming in judging me. They're worried about being judged or said they're doing good or bad. And that's not my purpose at all. All I'm doing is literally just taking as copious notes as I can of everything I see and hear in the classroom. I don't even know the content you're teaching. I have no idea. I have no idea about genetics that Jen teaches. I know a little bit. I can get into yours a little bit more study because I kind of got a little bit of background knowledge about, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about. But I go in these engineering classes. I have no, some engineering professor asked me, he's like, so did you learn about blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. All I'm documenting all of the interactions between you and the students, between the students and the students, between documenting how you're teaching things, right? So showing slides, using slides, making notes, using different activities. That's all I'm doing is documenting all of that stuff and then going through and finding the places where you're supporting student wellness, where you're where you're teaching well or you're embedding things that are going to that are going to support student wellness. And then sharing those back and looking for patterns, right? So I'm looking for patterns in that data. And then I'm writing those up. So I'm interested, let's talk about that a little bit. So if we haven't said so before explicitly, your role as the director of well-being and learning environments program is to facilitate these interactions with faculty in which you're sort of talking with them, giving them resources. And I've benefited quite a bit from being in this program. It's been amazing, as, as Stephanie just said, to have you come in and just observe the interactions. And really, that's what I was interested in. Like, I'm okay with the content, but I wanted to know, do you think my students are feeling comfortable? Do they feel comfortable asking questions? What do you notice about their body language? That I can't really keep track of all the time because I'm thinking about the content. And so it's been incredibly insightful to get that feedback and those pointers on how I could do it in a slightly different way to make an even stronger impact or, you know, this seems good. Think about this other thing. So that's been really, you know, personally really rewarding for me. And I always appreciate your very thorough notes. I, I studied them <laughs> and I really appreciate the time you take. So what have you been noticing? What what does that work look like for you over this past year? I mean, it's everything's been online. So it's been hard for you to get a sense of the classroom class? I think it's, I mean, it's definitely harder than being in person, mostly because, you know, when you're in Zoom meetings or in Zoom, you know, classrooms, you know, students have their videos cameras off, right? And there you, you can't see, you can't very often you can't, you can only see maybe those three or four who are who want to have their cameras on, right? And, and I think that's actually one of the things that faculty are kind of just going to have to be okay with. Uh, it doesn't bother me that people, I, I've, I've taught, I've done now all these different presentations. I've probably done 80 or so, maybe more presentations over the last year in Zoom, right? I've definitely done more if you count the other project that I work on at the Meadows Center. And for the most part, most people, in, not just students, most people don't turn their cameras on when they're listening to somebody talking, right? When they're listening to a panel discussion or they're listening to a person present, most people just, it's just not something people want to do. I don't want to do it. So I, I just think people are going to kind of have to be okay with students not having their camera on. Now, the, the, the thing that's hard about that is you don't know why they don't have their camera on, right? So you don't know if they're really sitting there and you don't know if they're working on other things while you're on, you know, and you can see some, you can see these things in a classroom, right? Like you can see, like I can see, I'm sitting behind students. I can see what's on their computer screen that they've got their computers on. I can see if it's Facebook or Twitter and these things that I don't really use because I'm not a big social media person. Um, someday, I guess I'll have to be, but, but, you know, I can kind of see, I can see students whose, 
you know, who clearly have facial expressions here that are kind of like, meh. I can see when people are doing their cooperative or, you know, their cooperative learning or their partner work and they're actually having a discussion versus, you know, I don't know what's happening in all the breakout rooms or, you know, are people even talking in some of them? I don't know. So you definitely, there's definitely things that are sort of hidden. And, and I think, quite honestly, I just kind of think it's, you do the best you can and you try to embed as much interaction as you can. And I've been reading some of these things, some of these faculty now who are really talking about how much they like online learning, how much they like online teaching because they've figured out ways to create that interaction. But they're, but what they're doing is they're not doing a lot of lecturing. So they're not doing a lot of what I'm doing right now, which is talking a lot. They're actually recording themselves doing that stuff. And students can watch that stuff on their own. And what they're doing is they're having a lot more of the collaborative work happening during actually the synchronous time. So their classes almost switched around and become very almost like a flipped classroom, really, in some ways, I guess. Anyway, I think there's, you know, there's benefits and 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 negative things to all of this stuff, to in-person, to to online. And I think it's just trying to capitalize as much as you can on the good stuff and trying to minimize as much as you can the negative stuff. There's still going to be negatives. And, you know, and trying to figure that out. And I think it's easier for some folks to figure out the online than other folks. I think it's, I, I mean, I'm kind of an in-between person. I didn't, I don't definitely don't have all the technology. stuff. I definitely don't have all the Zoom stuff down and all that and, or Canvas. I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to Canvas. I, there's people who just do amazing stuff on Canvas, you know, with videos and Panopto and all that. You know, I think that's great. But I also, I have to say, I prefer the in-person. Like I, I prefer the in-person Connection is just better. Even with my colleagues, having a meeting in person where you can share food, you know, you can talk. You, I don't know. There's just so much more chit chat and stuff like in between the other stuff that's happening. It's hard to chit chat on Zoom without people getting annoyed because they like, okay, we're on Zoom. Let's get this meeting done because I got another Zoom after this. Right. So true, Thea. What you're saying makes me also think you're talking about sort of building connections. Students have mentioned that it's fun in Zoom, thinking of Zoom opportunities. When they see the dog run in, they see the kid in the background, you know, it makes it brings humanity to the exchange. I like how you're talking about opportunities of Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I actually think that's one mistake that people do make is thinking that for some reason, everything on Zoom has to be perfect. There was one of the one of the faculty on our project when she was first starting this this year and she was getting ready for a class. She told me that one of her one of her lectures, she was doing some asynchronous lectures. And she recorded one, like she took her 17 times to record it. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, I kept messing up. And then this, I was like, who cares? Like mess up in front of the students. Like they don't care. They actually like that better. That makes it more interesting than you sitting there being perfect the whole time and talking. Yeah. Like, no, just be yourself. Do your thing. Make a mistake. Have a cat knock your drink over. Hopefully not on your computer or have, you know, your kids scream in the background at Apex and his friends. They're not rezzing him in time or whatever. We know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. So you you mentioned that faculty should show the students that they care. Yeah. And I can imagine some faculty would say, well, they'll know that. The students will know that because I do care. Or they might say, you know, I'm not equipped. I'm trained as... You know, I'm an expert in some other thing, not in mental health. And if I wade into that space, I might make a mistake. How do you help faculty embrace the opportunities that you're talking about? The mistake is when you think you're not already wading into it. You're teaching. (laughs) Like, I mean, I'm not trying to make light of that idea. Right. But you you've signed up to teach 
50, 100, 500, whatever it is, people, human beings, the emotion doesn't, they don't come to the door and say, okay, you're dropping this at the door. So you're already wading into it by agreeing to teach. That's part of the deal. You know, I've actually been working on a manuscript right now with pharmacy folks about caring and connectedness, because that's one of the things we ask on our survey. So we always, we give out the student survey, right, every semester. And two of the questions, the open-ended questions are about how did the faculty member show that they cared about you as a person? And how did the faculty member help you feel connected or like you belonged in the class? And we're analyzing that data right now. And honestly, the stuff with caring that the students say is very basic human things. It's nothing that is mind-blowing stuff. I mean, it's really being just an authentically genuine, nice person who doesn't try to cover up their foibles, who doesn't try to cover up that they're imperfect. Because guess what? You're imperfect. (laughs) It doesn't matter that you're a faculty member. You've made mistakes. You've struggled. It's okay for you to have, and it's okay for students to, and guess what? It's okay for y'all to, to talk about all of that. And actually, it's necessary for you to talk about that. When that's you when you try to fake your yeah. way through that, that's when you start to get in trouble. And I learned that very early teaching fifth and sixth grade, because fifth and sixth graders, they'll call you out on it. Yeah, they don't have any know. problem telling you, <laughs> Miss Twitter, you screwed up. Whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, you know what? You're actually right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the humbling thing about having children. Yeah, yeah. So why does showing that we care make learning better? So one of the things that we know from the research, this is not the order of making this up. This is research. This is what people write about all the time. If you, if you actually go and try to get training and teaching, like one of the things we emphasize very much in the College of Education is building relationships with students. Because you are much more likely to want to learn from somebody who respects you and who you respect, who cares about you and then who you can then reciprocate. And that's actually one of the things they find in the research is that reciprocity for that manuscript that I'm talking about with the pharmacy folks. I had to do a lot of research reading the caring literature, right? And caring literature in higher ed, which there's not as much of as there is in pre-K through 12. There's a lot in pre-K through 12. We know in pre-K through 12, this has happened. Higher ed, it is, uh, it's not as well researched, as well documented, but there is research that shows that it's one of the things that students talk about when they talk about faculty who are more effective, who help them to learn better. They talk about that the faculty member cared about them. Now, having said that, going back to what Stephanie asked, there are some folks in the literature who question whether faculty should really have to care, whether, and that sounds mean, but that, that, you know, whether being caring really supports is necessary to support effective learning in higher education. And, and their whole point is that, you know, that higher ed faculty, again, like I mentioned, are, they're not trained. They, they may not have the time to devote to some of this because they also have research. They also have service. They have these other things that they're doing, especially at like a university like UT, right. It's a research one university where research for many faculty is much a much higher priority than teaching. And so they talk about those things. And so that was one of the things I was interested in looking at the student data is, well, do the students say that? And there are actually a few students who are like, I don't really care. My professor doesn't need to care about me. I'm fine. I'm good. But that's a very tiny, very tiny number (laughs) of students. And, you know, for a lot of those are probably students, too, who have done fine their whole lives are like, I'm fine. I'm by myself. I do my own thing. I'm good. You know? And I think there are those. I just don't think there's that many. And there's certainly not that many. There's getting fewer and fewer of those percentage wise as 
our campuses get more and more diverse, right? Because we have students who want those relationships, who want to have mentors and folks who they can connect with. And you know what? It just makes it more enjoyable. Like who wants to go around being like a teaching, teaching like a robot and having a bunch of robots in the classroom? Like, Good morning, Dr. Chandra. This is how I'm ready for my first lesson. That to me is not what learning is about. That's why I was so fascinated when I was teaching fits. It's great about the emotional motivation part, because for me, that was what was the interesting part. I mean, the content was good too. I wanted to teach my science content. I wanted to get kids to, to learn how to read. But that emotional motivational aspect was so much more interesting and so much more powerful than just getting this content across to these, you know, 11 and 12 year olds. Powerful. That's such a cool idea, Thea. And it makes me really think about how learning is such a social thing. I've heard from faculty, they say that they are more aware of the struggles that students have been facing because of being online and maybe seeing the variation in the environments in which students are studying. Are you finding that true? Are we more sensitive to students now? I think a lot of faculty are. I think, you know, I mean, there's always going to be people who think, you know, this is how I do things and everybody should just do them the way I think they should do them. But I think for the most part, most, I mean, and I've actually read some reports where, you know, there's like, there was one report I was reading. I can't remember if it was from the Jed Foundation or Healthy Minds. I think it might have been in Healthy Minds. But it was, it, they were looking at actually what faculty were talking about and asking about. And they were saying how, I think it was like 80 to 90% of faculty were like, I need more help in supporting my students' mental health. I need more, like, I. this is definitely something that I'm aware of. So 80 to 90%, that only leaves about 10, 15 to 15% of those people who are like, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, so that's a pretty over pretty good majority of faculty who are saying, yeah, this is something that really needs to happen. The other way, the other reason I know that this is something is I get asked, I could probably send, I could send you an email with the probably 50, 60 uh, other university folks who have emailed me or who have called me over the last three years that I've been working on this for almost four years now on this project, wanting to start the same kind of uh, initiative that we have going. In fact, I was just talking with one last week. I was just emailing back and forth with one last week because they're trying to get a little bit of our data just to kind of motivate other folks to see that this is important. And they want to use our guidebook to sort of as a baseline, as a framework to create their own kind of guidebook for faculty. But I'm just going to say, this is not something that's going away. And it's not going away. And it's right that it's not going away. It's not going away because faculty are figuring it out, staff are figuring it out, and students aren't going to let it go away. Because students are very much more aware now of mental health. Of They're much more willing to talk about mental health. They're much more willing to stand up and say, hey, you're not supporting my mental health. You're not, you're not taking care of me. This is not right. You know? And they're willing to say that and call people out on it. And they're, they're right to do that. I mean, you, you can see that in the media. That just happened with the tennis player, right? Who basically quit, dropped out of, I think she dropped out of Wimbledon, right? Because she needed to take care of herself. She needed to take care of her mental health. And so... I think this is something that socially is happening. It's not just universities. I mean, I told you it's already happened. It's been happening in pre-K through 12, where this is a big initiative and a big push. And so it's not it's not going to go away. It's only going to increase. It's only going to be something that more and more people are going to be talking about and, and realizing it's something that, that has to happen. So... Segue so nicely into the into my last question about this, which is thinking about how far we've come in this last year. It feels like a lot of really important progress has been made, at least on the level of faculty awareness of student, as, as Stephanie was mentioning earlier, of student experiences in your classroom. What's your hope for next year? 
Well, on my project, on my initiative, I think we need more more happening at the departmental level. So we keep I keep having individual faculty who are coming on, right? Or who I find out they're doing this or they're, or they're interested or somebody connects me. And I, I have so many faculty I can reach out. I mean, Jen, you've given me like probably a dozen who I haven't, I have tried to not to bother over the last year because I know people are just like, yeah, it's too much. And I get that. But um, I think more needs to happen at the department college level where deans and associate deans and some of these folks are actually putting initiatives in place in their colleges and in their departments because we can have individual faculty do it and that's great and we can do that kind of grassroots ground up thing but it also sort of helps from the top down right if we have those folks who are interested in that so like you know the Cockrell School of Engineering they have started a mental health and wellness committee that's been working over the last year to try to move some of these things and create some momentum in across their departments. College of Liberal Arts has created a humanities project where, with academic advisors and then also trying to reach out to some of the faculty on our project. Pharmacy is one of our pilot groups and they, I just met with them. They've already had like a two year wellness plan in place. And now we're, we're like looking at that and revising it and like kind of trying to lay out another two to four year strategic plan on mental health and wellness and pharmacy. And there's some other folks that, you know, some other departments or colleges I've talked to, school of nursing, some of these other folks that have us in place. But I think to get it more widespread, to get more things happening. And the, the reason I say that too, is students are asking for that. Like the student groups in these different colleges and departments are creating their own mental health, you know, ambassadors and committees and all of this. So it just makes sense that, you know, faculty and staff would do it. I think it's just hard. There's just so much, right? There's just so much that's happening right now with trying to figure everything out that it's, it's hard. I get why it's not always a priority, which is what my job is, is to keep it up on people's minds. So that's one of my, so I tell people, one of my jobs is just to keep this at the fore, like let people know, like I, so I send emails out and I send out announcements from our Canvas course. I'm like, remember, we're here. This is something you need to be thinking about. You need to be posted. And at some point what happens is time or energy, something happens where it kind of opens up for people and I'll hear from them like, oh yeah, we need to do this. Or, oh, can you come to this meeting and talk? Or, oh, we've got this faculty group that we're thinking it would be good to do. CIS results back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's always fun when I get to go and work with faculty whose course instructor surveys are not super great. Although I have to say, I've worked with a couple of those faculty who were amazing and actually turned some things around in their classroom just by, again, just doing some good teaching practices, stopping certain things. So stop doing this, <laughs> right? Stop cold calling on students and then making them feel bad when they don't know the answer. Start doing corroborative learning and asking that same question, letting students do these little things that can make a difference. So. And then those ideas help the faculty member feel more effective in achieving the goals that they had in mind anyway. That's my whole thing is teaching is fun. Teaching should not make you or anybody else miserable. It should be an enjoyable thing. And that's my whole mission is make people's lives happier. Like this is how you become a happier faculty member is do some things that are actually fun when you're teaching. I know a lot of higher ups had that word fun, but it is, it's fun. Like it's fun (laughs) getting to know people and having conversations and learning about them while they're learning the content that you're trying to get, you know, and why is this important to you? And what are your goals in life? And who are you want to be when you grow up? You know, even though you're 21, you're still not grown up. It is always fascinating, like what people think teaching is like, it's this like, like must make you be, become the best engineer in the world. Phenomenal cosmic power. I know. 
like it's this place for us to come together and get to know each other. Oh, where you from? And learn some stuff while we're here. I learned how to dehydrate animate objects and rehydrate them at will. And have it and enjoy ourselves. We aren't. We don't have to be miserable doing this. <laughs> and just because something's hard doesn't mean it's any better or any you know doing more significant things, right? Fun can be doing remarkable things too. That's what drives me crazy is that people act like, oh, well, if it's fun, then it's less rigorous. I hate that word rigor. Like, you don't even know what that means. You don't even know. That has nothing that rigor comes when you're when you have high expectations. You're expecting people to go deep with something. That doesn't mean it has to be horrible. In fact, if it's horrible, that's going to be harder to go deeper with it because you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to be motivated to do it. And so you're going to do you're going to use very minimal strategies, learning strategies that aren't going to get you where you need to be to learn that that content. So on Bloom's taxonomy, the, the higher level thinking that you want, right? Remember? In your class. I do remember. I know. I even matched assignments to the Bloom's taxonomy so that people understood where we were working with each thing, right? Yeah, it matters. It matters. Thea, I just feel so lucky that we have your expertise and I really appreciate what you do and what you're describing just makes so much sense to me. It's fun. It's fun. And I like doing what I do because I also get to hang out with cool people like y'all, right? hundred percent. And I feel like if anyone can do this for a giant university like UT Austin, it's going to be you. And we are all behind you. (laughs) All of your disciples now that have gone through your program and have really seen the benefits are all behind you, cheering you on. So thank you. Thank you so much for visiting us today and and for sharing all this amazing work you're doing. We're so excited to have you at the university and to have a chance to talk. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Enjoyable. (laughs) Thanks, Thea. All right. That was amazing. So, Jen, what do you take away from that? Well, you had posed the question about how sometimes it feels uncomfortable entering into this realm of what seems like student mental health. And and I resonate quite a bit with that. I think, again, coming from the sciences, which, you know, if I were in social work, maybe I'd feel a little differently about this. But in the sciences, we, we sort of have this sense of pride about like, this is just the facts and it's all objective, which we know is not truly the case. But there's a sense in which you're going to the classroom you don't expect to have to face like strong student emotion about anything, right? Like we're talking about genes, you know? So I think what was very helpful for me to hear is when she just said, you know, look, you're teaching human beings and you are a human being, you're already in it. Like, <laughs> and I was like, that's absolutely right. It's, and then you followed up with, it's a social environment first and all learning happens as a result of the ties that you make the community that you build in your classroom. And that supports learning. So that really resonated with me. I thought that was that was cool. Yeah, I did. I, I really did jot down your learning context. And like you said, I think oftentimes I'm focusing on conveying information. I'm not a big lecturer. It's a lot of activities in my classroom, but still it's a focus on the, the knowledge and how I want to roll out those ideas. But then when she used that phrase learning context, I thought, of course, there's a context to what we're doing and and that there's emotion in my syllabus, an emotion in my syllabus. And I thought, is there an emotion? And I felt from her answer, this awareness that whether I intend it or not, 
I am expressing things. I'm expressing an idea about myself and I'm expressing assumptions about my students. I love that simple idea of what comes first on the syllabus shows what your priority is. Yeah, that was great. Light bulb. Yeah. I mean, of course. You're setting the tone right there. You're You're setting setting the the tone with this document and how many times I am excited when students have read the document and yet I've never thought of the document so clearly as Theo was describing it as an opportunity to shape the learning context. That was really fun. Thanks so much. It was fun. (laughs) Thanks. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.